It's Tuesday at 8pm and you're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. And you're very welcome to this week's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and welcome to Spanish Food and Wine Week 2021. There's lots of events taking place across the country this week to celebrate. And we're going to talk to wine expert Leslie Williams from The Examiner about Spanish wine and give a shout out to two events taking place in West Limerick where you will find Leslie. And if you heard last week's show, you will know that last Saturday on October the 2nd, this year's Blossnerin Irish Food Awards winners were announced. And last week, before we knew the results, I spoke to two finalists, Linda McGibbon, creator of Sea Sugar Sweets, and Judy Ratliff from Jude's Chocolates. But before we hear from our guests, a reminder that you can make contact by emailing me s.noonan at live.ie or you can tweet me at Queen of Org, as in Queen of Organisation, and I'm on Instagram at Sharon J. Noonan. So a number of years ago at a market near where I'm from originally in the north, I came across Linda and her little bags of sweets. When the list of finalists for this year's Blossner and Irish Food Awards came out, I was delighted to see some of Linda's wares listed. So I gave her a call last week to catch up. Let's have a listen. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Linda, how are you keeping? I'm well, Sharon. I am very well. How are you? I'm great. It's lovely to be talking to you from West Limerick and you're up there. Are you up in Larne today or what part of the country are I'm you not, in? Well, um, I'm generally in Larne at my workshop this morning. Uh, hope so. I'm working from home. Beautiful Whitehead, so yes. Fabulous. And look, Larne, Larne is just down the road from you there and that's where Sea Sugar Sweets is. So tell everybody about your business and when you started it. Well, Sea Sugar has been going for about six years now, a little over six years. Um, really, it was uh, I, I wanted to uh, produce hard sweets that didn't have any rubbish, and that's what I've been doing since day one. So, uh, yes, they're, they're a lovely, clean, clear flavour because there's nothing rubbish in them. There's no artificial additives, preservatives, uh, anything unnatural. So uh, they're very true flavours. I just wanted to sort of bring them up into the modern age. There was far too many um, cola cubes and pineapple chunks and the oldie, old things, which didn't really taste of anything except sugar. And I wanted to taste of sweets that actually tasted of what it said in the label. So uh, that's what I do. And I'd say you first came onto my radar probably not long after you had opened your business because that was in... Brasheen, just outside, just outside Ballymena, where I'm from, and you were there at the market selling your your lovely sweets. And like many food producers, that's how you started out selling them at markets. That's how I started. I was thinking of that the other day. That's the day the time I met you. Probably would have been very early days, first or second market. And uh, yeah, the, the sweets haven't greatly changed since then i hit a formula that worked people bought them in uh, great numbers and i've just been making them that way any uh, ever since i don't do very many markets these days um for lots of different reasons uh primarily there's um there's enough stockists to keep me occupied so uh, i don't have to do the hard 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 work of standing at events all day long particularly in winter i don't miss it I'm sure you don't, but I'm sure the people that were there buying them definitely miss the sweets. And although they haven't changed that much from the start, the branding and the packaging has definitely evolved. Yes, it has. Um, beginning of 2020, I I redid my, my packaging. It needed to be something that wasn't quite so... Um, homemade, I guess, was the look. Previously, it was just a little bag with a little header card. And that was grand. But then when it went into a stockist and it sat alongside something that had beautiful packaging, I thought, oh, no, it needs to be smarter. So I went out and I had it um, professionally designed and printed. And I get so many comments uh, on the um, the presentation of them that they do look um, 
very, very, very smart. So I'm very happy with them. But I think that's a very typical example of the journey from a food producer that whenever you start out, it's very much about the product and the packaging is secondary because you're putting all your time and effort into getting the product right. But as time goes on, then you have the, the funds and the resources to look at the packaging in more detail and update it and bring it up to the same standard as the product inside it. That's it. That's exactly what I did. Uh, I mean, if I hadn't had an eye to how they how they appeared um, on a shelf, I would have just continued um, in the little bags that they were in because at the end of the day, you take the packaging off, you discard it, um, and, and you're left with the little bag. So they're still in the little bags, just the outside looks a wee bit smart. They've just got a nice new coat. <laughs> well, tell us about the different flavours and what the most popular few are in the range, because I know some of the ones I maybe had at the start, there was like the Cosmopolitan, the Mojito, but I think you've moved away from those names. Okay, I have. They were just playing about with flavours and playing about with what sold, what caught people's eye and where I actually wanted to pitch my product. And so I just went to the straight um, descriptions of what was in the packet rather than emulating anything I think then it was just a wee bit of fun um, but it kind of caught maybe not the customer that I was aiming at um, albeit you know uh, what was in the packet maybe emulated a particular um, cocktail or that type of thing but now I have it culled when I did my repackaging I culled my um, collection suites from a dozen down to eight and uh, some just uh, fell by the by because they weren't as big a seller as the eight that remained. So um, my best sellers um, are the rhubarb ones. So I've got rhubarb and bourbon vanilla, rhubarb and strawberry. Uh, peach and raspberry uh, will always be the big seller. Uh, it outstrips everything else. It, I don't know what it is about peach and raspberry, um, but I get a lot of people coming back time and time again going, I'm out, I need more, feed me, I need more peach and raspberry. Uh, so they, they're very, very popular. Um, coconut and pineapple, lime and mint. My personal favourite, apple, pear and ginger. Delicious. Um, what have we got? Black cherry and vanilla, which is just, I guess it's a Marmite moment. You either love it or you hate it. I absolutely adore it because it's just chock full of black cherry gorgeousness. Um, is that it? Did I mention them all there? I think you did. Uh, and I, I'm very curious to know where you get the inspiration for the different flavours. Do you know, they're just flavours I like. Um, I wanted to make a rhubarb sweet because everybody talks about rhubarb and custard. Well, rhubarb and custard sweet doesn't actually really, to me anyway, a taste of rhubarb and custard. Um, and I really wanted to taste rhubarb because it's just one of my favourite things in the world. So I find a really, really good uh, rhubarb extract which actually tastes of really really ripe rhubarb and I thought why taint this with anything else other than a beautiful warm bourbon vanilla and the two are just exquisite together and then thinking about my mum's lovely rhubarb and strawberry crumble I thought yeah let's try it with a lovely bit of uh, a very um, uh, tart almost unripe strawberry um, that I have. I wanted that to go alongside the rhubarb and it worked. So that's the two. Look, if it was up to me, I would have a whole range of rhubarb sweets, quite honestly, because they're my favourites. Um, but the other ones, they're, um, sometimes people say to me, do you ever do such and such a sweet? And I think, oh, there's an idea. I could, I could think about it. I might try it. And then I also do a, an online, in my online shop, I have a bespoke flavour, build your own flavour. So, you, you know, you select from 32-ish or something like that flavours and you build up your own flavour. And sometimes from those, there are some absolute corkers come in and that make me think, oh, no, if ever I was doing another flavour, that could be something like that. You know, some really good flavour combinations. So it's, a lot of it is I know that will work and sometimes it's I'd give that a wee go. So, um, But the fact that eight that remain are just really popular. Tried and tested, they work. I'm going to do two more in the num number of uh, months, maybe coming into the new year, two, three more. Uh, and at, at the minute, I have a short list of about a dozen. <laughs> so family and friends will be inundated. But try that. Tell me what you think. Because it's, uh, it's hard narrowing it down. But we'll get there. You mentioned the, the rhubarb extract and sourcing a really good quality one. So whenever it comes to your ingredients that's something that you're very committed to making sure that you get the, the best ingredients possible for the sweets. Oh, absolutely. From day one, 
Uh, number one, they had to be completely natural, and there's no point in going down the natural route if they're cheap natural ones that are diluted. Um, because the whole point is they have to be natural and you have to be able to have a good, strong flavour, a good sense of what the flavour is out of it. So I've got a few different um, suppliers of flavours and I will just regularly contact them and say, if you've got a little small amount of such and such a flavour, let me try it. And sometimes it just doesn't hit what I'm wanting or it doesn't combine terribly well with um, other flavours. I might want a really zingy apple or I might want a nice kind of a very ripe eating apple flavour, you know, so the apple um, that I use in apple, pear and ginger isn't a bright, sunny apple. It's not a, a sharp green apple. I have a sharp green apple that I use for other things. But the one that I use in apple, pear and ginger is a, uh, it would remind you of a warm eating apple. So it's got that, uh, it's odd to say softness, but it's got a softness to the flavor. It's not sharp and zingy, so it doesn't overpower the pear and ginger. So completely different i try and try and try i've got so many flavors and i love experimenting it's like a lab sometimes in my workshop to get the right flavor and you have a workshop now but i would imagine when you started out it was in your kitchen oh it was yeah trialing the recipes trialing uh what flavors work was in my kitchen but very very quickly that proved uh, unworkable with two kids coming home from school straight into the kitchen mom we're hungry and there i am elbow deep in sweets and that wasn't working. So uh, it either got to the point where I had to finish my work at about two o'clock because my youngest was, uh, that's the time he was arriving home, uh, or have some other way of, of producing these. So I very quickly moved out and, and uh, got a workshop all set up, which is lovely. I can leave it and, uh, and nobody bothering me. I could just close the door, come home come in the next morning and it's exactly as I left it and no bre uh, toast crumbs to tidy up <laughs> so it was good and it is a very skilled process making sweets that you know there there's a lot of expertise involved in it there is and I think it's one of these things that, uh, that people would often overlook they go oh that's just easier the boiled sweets aren't they well yeah and it's like anything when it goes right it's fairly simple uh, but there are so many areas where it can go terribly, terribly wrong. And then it's knowing well, how to avoid it or how to correct that. Um, so I wouldn't say it's for the faint hearted. You're working at the most ridiculous temperatures of sugar. Um, so it's a little bit dangerous. And you're lifting that sugar and pouring it out. And then you're lifting it with your hands, albeit with, with gloves on. You know, it's not, uh, it's not as easy as some. But uh, my goodness, there's not one time that I don't pour the sugar out, let it cool a little and then lift it, but I don't think, this is just pure alchemy. This is amazing. I love doing this. Brilliant. That's great that you enjoy it so much. I do. I absolutely adore it. I haven't yet hit the day where I think, oh, I don't want to go to work. I, I get out of, every, out of bed every morning with a spring in my step and I think, what flavours are I going to make today? Sometimes if I'm bored, I'll go into my workshop and I'll just make something completely different for my family or friends to eat. The other day I made some lovely fondants and flavoured them with coffee, a little bit of salt in them and dipped them in chocolate. And I had people saying, are, are those, can I buy those? No, those are just for me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and it's just to sort of remind myself that I, I can make so many more items, items of confectionery, um, but albeit it's, that's just the fun part of it. The rest is business. I remind myself to be sensible and at this time of year are you looking to do anything in particular for the Christmas market or is it just the staples that you like to, to keep out there well um in previous years when I did events um I like to go to events with different flavors that were um Christmassy flavors if you like you know the cinnamons and the cloves and all that kind of thing but with not doing events I find that my stockists want to order in greater volume the sweets that they've ordered for the uh, for the remainder of the year and I find that they're neither not bothered one way or the other if I offer Christmas flavors or if I don't so uh, I'm probably not going to and when I was doing my packaging way back when just to keep costs down a little bit um, I didn't do Christmas flavors because at that time I think it was January uh, last year I was looking to get new packaging done and I really didn't have a mind to Christmas. What will I be doing at Christmas? Well, you know, with COVID looming, will I even be in business at Christmas? So 
I just stuck with the those eight varieties and then thought, well, I'll think about Christmas later. And as I say, as we came to it, with no events, with stockists just saying, look, we love your sweets. We'll just buy lots more of what you've been producing um, until now. And so Christmas, maybe I'll have uh, online orders um, that will be available as a kind of a, a pick and mix, um, that kind of thing. I'll maybe make them available to people because there are uh, four Christmas flavours that I've done to this point uh, or until last year, uh, which were popular with with. Uh, customers at events so maybe I'll still maybe to produce them so that they can get them and you mentioned COVID there Linda and what way did it affect your your business well number one it ruled out events and until that point I was I was doing events um, and I'd never consciously made the decision that I wasn't going to but uh, the events stopped of course when they started to very tentatively um, resume um, for one reason or another, I decided to not to. I think I did one through a group I'm with, Naturally North Coast and Blends, which are based up at Ballycastle. I did one with them, and it worked very well. But I find myself a little anxious. Um, at home, it's myself and my two kids. And I thought, gosh, if something happens to me, if I get this, um, who's going to mind my kids? <laughs> you know, And that's a purely practical thing. Um, and I just decided, no, I'm not going to. That decision was uh, largely informed as well, uh, as well as a kind of a, an eye to my own health. At the time, lots, lots and lots more stockists um, appeared. Uh, maybe small businesses which were closed who thought, well, we have diversify, we'll start doing hampers. What do we put into hampers? And then they gave me a call and said, we want your sweets. So I got a lot more stockists last year which kept me busy through the whole lockdown period. I could go to my workshop because I work on my own um, and it's only a few miles from home, so I could I could get out there, I could work away, I could post my um, orders off to, to, to stockists, and that kept everybody going. And they have remained ever since. And uh, so that has also then eliminated the need to to increase business by doing events. So yes, it was a it um it worked out okay. It changed the nature of my business, but I think I wouldn't be alone in saying that most of us. Our business has changed and we had to to adapt and uh, it worked. And of course, we couldn't talk to you about your products without asking you about some of the awards that you've received over the years. Yes, goodness, I started off uh, with the Great Taste Awards and in a few years I got five of them. And then I always had an eye to blast and sort of typical reticence of a small producer thought, oh, I'm not quite... I'm not quite good enough for Blas. I just regarded it as the pinnacle. And I thought, oh, to pop with it, I'm going to enter. And I did. And I think the first time I entered, I didn't get shortlisted, um, which has compounded my my sense of, oh, I'm not quite good enough. Um, second time I entered, I was shortlisted and didn't win. Third time, I was shortlisted and won a bronze. And fourth time, I won gold and silver. That was just last year. So, oh, you can imagine how that made me feel. But more than anything, I felt very proud for these little sweets that, yeah, you're, you are good enough. You're, you're you're nice. You're lovely. People like you. you know? so, um, and you're not just a little sweet in the bag. You're you're up there with some very, very good producers. I mean, little sweets will never have the regard that, uh, you know, a, a bottle of hand of crafted cider will have or a, a beautiful tomahawk steak or, a, you know, something amazing and something wonderful that's got heritage behind it that people wax lyrical about and go crazy about and it wins everything going. I think people will always regard a wee bag of sweets as being, um, they've got that sentimental thing without having heritage, if you know what I mean. They've got, it's just that familiar, almost disdain, oh, a wee bag of sweets, yeah, that's nice, great. I can buy a wee bag of sweets down the sweetie shop for a pound, you know. Well, yeah, but you're not buy these down your your sweetie shop for for the same amount of money because these are completely different. It's almost in a sense a reinvention of something old, uh, bringing it up into the modern age, if you know what I mean. Um, uh, recreating it in a way and then shouting out, "Come and taste this! Look!" And uh, if you don't believe me, believe these little stickers that that uh, that say, "Yeah, this is really really good." That's why I wanted the Enter Awards in the first place, not for me but to give credibility to my products. And I think it's more than done that. 
Well, if anybody can change the narrative around little bags of sweets, Linda, it is you. Congratulations on your success today at getting through COVID and all the challenges that it posed. And we wish you all the very best of luck in the future. Thank you so much, Sharon. I appreciate it. I appreciate all you do for little food producers in Ireland. So if anybody would like to order, the online shop is at seasugar.co.uk. Fantastic. Thanks, Linda. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. to the best possible taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break we heard from Linda McGibbon from Sea Sugar Sweets who had products in this year's Blossnaren Irish Food Awards and I was delighted to see during the announcements of the winners on Saturdays that Linda's little bags did extremely well with a gold and a bronze. If you're just tuning in now and you missed that you can catch the repeat of best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM on Wednesday mornings at 8am and it's available on all the usual podcast places. Still to come tonight, we're going to hear from another Bloss finalist, Judy Ratcliffe from Jude's Chocolates. But before that, let's quench our thirst with our next guest, Leslie Williams, and find out about Spanish wines and Spanish Food and Wine Week. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Leslie, you're very welcome to the best possible taste. This week is food and wines from Spain week. So you're going to be in West Limerick tomorrow, which is Wednesday, the 5th of October, and also on Thursday, the the 7th of October as well. You're, You're coming to visit us in West Limerick. But before we get into that and find out more about those events, Let's talk a bit about Spanish wines. What are the most well-known or the best-known Spanish wines? Would it be the likes of the Riocas, for example? Am I even saying that correctly? No, you are saying it perfectly correctly. Uh, thanks, Sharon. Nice, nice, nice to talk to you again. Um, yeah, so Rioja is easily the most famous of, of the red wine regions of Spain. And, you know, I remember about, what, about 15, 20 years ago when I was first thinking seriously about wine, thinking, oh, yeah, Spain is great, but it's so boring. There's nothing that every, everyone is just using Tempranillo with a bit of Grenache. There's not, no, no, there aren't that many interesting wines from Spain. But now that I know better and now that, that um, things have improved so much in Spain and basically the Spanish put huge investment in the in the 1990s into the 2000s into their wineries, into their vineyards, into training people. And it's now stuffed, the whole country is stuffed with young women and men uh, making wine of, of really interesting flavours from grapes you have never heard of. So Rioja is still the most famous. It's historically the most important. Um, but I would, uh, some would argue that the wines of uh, Roberto del Duero, which is about an hour and a half north of Madrid, uh, that they are as interesting, if not more interesting. And uh, they have a different character to Rioja. Rioja is all about the oak and about the aging and about the spice and cinnamon character um, and those tertiary flavors, not the sort of primary fruit flavors, but the, and not even the secondary flavors of oak, but the third flavors that, that get when you, you get when, when, when wine has been left to age for a little while. Whereas a wine like Roberto del Duero is pure dark blackcurrant fruits complex intense flavors um with sort of smoke and licorice and stuff going on and yes it, it can also get tertiary flavors and so on but it, it is just such an interesting and completely different wine to what you get in Rioja, even though essentially um tempranillo is the, is the main grape used in both but let, let me jump from there then you just keep going um so you've already got an hour and a half north of madrid okay let's go two hours west of that towards galicia you're not actually in galicia yet to Bierzo, and there you've got a completely different wine that doesn't particularly work well with oak called um, the grape is Mencia, uh, Bierzo is the region. Um, you won't find these in every shop, but you will find them in smaller independents if you look. Um, and those wines are, are completely different. They're almost like a Beaujolais in, in some instances. You know, bright, juicy, ripe fruits. Almost, I think the cheaper ones are better than the expensive ones because the expensive ones are using oak and oak is expensive. And so as a result, the inexpensive, uh, juicy, fruity ones are, are more pleasurable. You can serve them chilled, you can serve them cool. Um, 
over in Bierzo, the white grape that they use, Menci is the red grape, the white grape they use is Godello, Godello, G-O-D-E-L-L-O, a grape that almost went extinct in the 1970s, but was revived by a couple of wine growers in Valdioris in Galicia. So Valdioris Godellos are amazing. Just any Godello you get from sort of Galicia, but also from uh, specifically from around Bierzo and Castilla y Leon, uh, which is um, the sort of regional area around Leon, uh, they're all interesting. And I'm going to keep going here, right? So let's, let's um, keep Going west into Galicia and then down south, you've got Albarino. Now, here's a fact for you. We are the fourth biggest drinker of Albarino from Spicius in the world. And I don't mean by head, I mean by volume. We drink pallets of the stuff. Um, and this is this lovely, dense, flavoured um, sort of peach and apricot kind of aromas and texture, but also sort of salty and dry. Often the vineyards are literally on the beach. You walk through these pergola vineyards. By pergola, I mean the grapes are growing over your head on these sort of um, granite frames and you can literally your, your head is bumping off the right bunches as you walk through the through the vineyard and if you're in season uh, and then you literally are on the beach the beach is right there and so the grapes need thick skins to protect from the from the salty winds um, but also this adds a sort of saline character to it and so on um, and I'm going to be very quick and then nip right down go straight straight down down to Jerez sherry sherry completely different nobody drinks sherry um, as much as they should um, fino salty dry sherries amazing with fish and chips uh, and then you get aged ones that are uh, and I don't mean sweet ones these are bone dry you can of course get nice sweet ones but the bone dry ones are just as interesting Olorosos uh, and without Oloroso we wouldn't have a good red breast whiskey because that's what red breast whiskey is mainly aged in uh, or Macallan whiskey for that matter if you're interested in scotch whiskey um and then the southern um juicy fruits that you get around um ronda and some of those sort of small vineyards around there and they're growing things like petit verdot at this obscure bordeaux grape that nobody really grows to any great extent but it can ripen there it can't really ripen in bordeaux it, there it's just uses five percent to add heft to to bordeaux um and then you keep going across and then you're into alicante and then you've got the great monastrel which is the great one known as morvedre the third part of the Holy Trinity of Chateauneuf de Pape, uh, Grenache, Syrah, Morvedre, they're the three grapes you usually get in Cote d'Aron, Gigondas, Chateauneuf de Pape, but it comes into its own there because it can ripen. Spain can ripen these uh, difficult, tannic, interesting grapes, um, but Monastrel can be feral and fragrant and delicate all at the same time um, and it, 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 it's a strange grape I mean in France it, it does well in Bandol if anyone's had Domaine Tampier Bandol or Domaine Off Bandol then in the very tip of Provence but that's really the only place in France I think it grows well um, but they can do it in Alicante and again a little bit of altitude allows the grapes to develop density and richness while retaining their acidity um, and then there's grapes like Bobal again a grape you've probably never heard of uh, but that's really interesting and and let's just nip back on whites and if we if we go back over to um, the northwest again Rueda um, a small region that used to try and make sherry like wines some of which are still they still do and they're kind of interesting but much more interestingly is Verdeco a grape in the same kind of ballpark as Sauvignon Blanc but really much more interesting much more layers in the, in the in, when, when you put it in your mouth um, it, it finishes a bitter lemon it's much more floral in character um but that's a kind of quick run through of some wines that people have probably not even thought about have you mentioned bubbles have you mentioned cava oh, yes well, i should absolutely mention cava yeah cava people think oh cava that that inexpensive fizz you get for 19.99 in the supermarket that's never nearly as nice as champagne why would i buy that you're drinking the wrong cava Okay, um, you think of a cava like, say, one, um, there's an organic-focused uh, importer called Mary Paul, uh, based in Kenmare, Cork area, but she, her wines are available all over the country. Um, she makes one from this producer called Albati Noia, um, and they use um, mostly Charello, which is the local grape, which is, um, you also get dry versions of Charello, um, X-A-R-E-L-L-O is how you spell that. Um, so it looks like Axarello, but it's pronounced Charello. Or something like that. Um, uh, other grapes that they use there, Parlada, Maccabeo, not necessarily all that interesting in their own right in grapes, although I do think Chirello can make fascinating wines, um, but you just leave them a little bit longer in the leaves. Um, it's harder in Cava because the Cava grapes don't have as many terpenes. Here's a technical word for you. So terpenes are basically aroma compounds that say so grape like say Muscat. I mean, you just know Muscat from even eating the grapes, you'd recognize them as Muscat grapes because they're just packed with terpenes. Chirello, Parlada, Maccabeo, have less of those but that doesn't mean they have less flavor made in a sparkling wine you just need to leave them a little bit longer just leave them a little bit longer on their leaves on the dead yeast cells once the wine is fermented that's the leaves um and i think 
kava can be fascinating. Um, and it's so much so that, that they've actually um, changed the rules on kava and they're now allowing, so kava, by the way, just so anyone is not sure, is, is from mostly from Penedes. I mean, it can be made elsewhere, but largely Penedes. So Penedes is about an hour in from Barcelona, if you, th if you think of your geography, sort of even less than that, sort of 25, 30 minutes, you're in kava country. Um, and it's, it's a really interesting region, actually, as well, for red wines, where the garnacha grows really, really interestingly. You get these sort of floral, more fragrant garnaches than you would get from the ones that are uh, you made down the south. But anyway, back to Cava. So the producers there, um, a lot of them organic, um, a lot of them um, doing unusual things with, like there's one crowd, Gramona, um, imported by uh, Winemason. Um, it, it, it's, I mean, these guys sell their wines at more expensive than, than many champagnes because they're that good and they, they can get those prices because they're that good. But they use a kind of a, a bit like in the way that sherry is made. So sherry is made, you, um, when you want to bottle some sherry, you take it from the barrels in the bottom shelf and then you take most of it out, but you leave a little bit. And then you fill those barrels from the shelf above and then, the and then fill those barrels from the shelf above. And finally, you're taking the wine straight from the tank going into the top layer. So you get the Solera system, uh, to which, which allows the wines to retain some character from, from previous generations of the same wine. Well, they use a starter, basically. The yeast that they use is made in the exact same way in Cava, and it just gives their wines a little more depth and a little more structure. But interestingly, they've actually, you can't buy them as Cava anymore. They're now called... Uh, uh, something completely different. They've they've moved out of the of the situation altogether, um, and they've um, set up their own Appalachian um, to allow them to basically make wines the way they want. Um, under organic conditions, um, uh, that the wines have to be aged a certain length of time, because the cava restrictions are um, are quite simple now. Besides the fact that they're allowing them to, that they've changed that. There's also some other producers have developed tiny little names for themselves and, and become regional. So instead of just calling it um, wines from Limerick, there's now wines from Newcastle West. The way that Champagne has to come from a certain part of France, but Cava doesn't have the same regional restrictions. No, it doesn't, but that, that, they are starting to change that. So you will still be able to buy inexpensive uh, cava um, made by, say, Festino. I mean, Festino make a brand of cava, and it's perfectly good. Um, but it's not made in, well, it could be made in Pirat. I don't, in, in, sorry, in, excuse me, in, um, in Penedas. Um, but I don't think it is, or it doesn't need to be anyway. It, it certainly doesn't seem to have much. Um, so the inexpensive stuff will still just be that, made fizzy wine to a particular standard um, and bottle conditions. The fizz is created in the bottle, unlike, say, Prosecco, where the fizz is created in the tank. Um, but with cava, it's still bottle conditioned, but the process is, is simpler than champagne. And usually the wines are not aged as long, so they're not as, the, the, the depth of flavor is not there. But having said that, that one I mentioned by Albert Moya, for example, has huge complexity and, and creamy lemon character and so on. Um, and that's 26.95. So yeah, you will start seeing, you'll still see inexpensive cava from anywhere, but you will also increasingly start seeing wines that are made specifically in Penedes and from specific subregions of Penedes. Um, by the way, the name of um, of the, what what the Gramona and a few other guys have gone under is now called Corpenat. Um, so Recoreda is another one that's imported by winemakers, I think, and there's about nine or ten producers, and it's it's listed as Recoreda, um, uh, which is oh, sorry, Recoreda is listed and, and Gramona are listed as Corpinat, C O R P I N N A T, which is an old name for for uh, Penedes. Um, but there's a few other producers that are doing similar things and, and sort of making their wine specifically in their little corner, and are getting permission to now name their wine not Cava but you know, Rathgar or Harold's Cross or whatever, as opposed to calling it Dublin Six or something, if you uh, take a Dublin in that. You're blinding us with information sorry, there. Sorry, sorry, yes, too much. But <laughs> fortunately for people in the West Limerick area, um, you're actually going to be here tomorrow and Thursday doing different wine tastings and events because it is Spanish Food and Wine Week. It's an initiative by the, the Spanish Embassy, by the Trade Officer, and it's, it's, it is all about introducing people to new wines and I want to talk in particular about the wines from the Spanish Camino because those are you're doing a tasting of those two wines with a lunch at Platform 22 along the Limerick Greenway so there's a great kind of connection there if you like between the Limerick Greenway and the Spanish Camino. 
Yeah, there is. And um, the Camino is interesting. When there's, there's, we think of the one Camino, the one that we all know, which is the one where you go over the, I mean, technically, if you were going from, from Ireland, you would, you, would, you would do this one through France over the Pyrenees and then straight across uh, the northern route. But there are also other routes that go up from Portugal and go up from Madrid. And there's one that goes from Malaga and so on. So, so you know, keep your minds open on the, on the, whole, um, on the whole Camino thing, because there are there's different ways of, of going in the Camino. But yeah, but this whole idea of pilgrimage and uh, what better way to do it. And if anyone ever gets to go on the original pilgrimage, by the way, there is a wine town where, where they, there's a wine fountain where literally you can just fill your bottle with free wine. Just there, there's an encouragement to anyone who hasn't ever, who's, who's ever thought about going on the Camino. And that's on, in, uh, quite early in the route as well. And there's two wines um, that are actually going to be tasted along with a lovely lunch Olive has put together. Olive Sheehan in Platform 22 has collaborated with members of the West Limerick Food Series to put together a lovely Limerick tapas menu. And you are going to present then two wines during that for people to have a little tasting of. Yeah, and, and we're going to go with two white wines um, because that's kind of what this region, uh, that's the Southern Galicia regions do best. Um, and so we've got two, there's Monterey is one region and then Riespaisius is the other. So uh, Riespaisius is the one people probably know best. So let me explain about that first. So Riespaisius is the, Riash is, is a river estuary, not unlike what you would get in, um, say, Kerry. I mean, that's effectively, those are effectively river estuaries like a fjord if you will and the grapes are grown along those so they have a lot of sea influence and that's what I was saying about Albarino it, it, it can cope with sea influence because it's got thick skins which also makes the grapes more interesting because they're quite fragrant as a result of those thick skins and just gives them texture and so on and they also have this sort of salty freshness and so on um, so that's Nye from um, uh, which Cassidy wines I think bring in um, but then more interestingly possibly for, for some people I think will be Gadeo because a lot of people will not have tried Gadeo so Gadeo is this as I said this interesting grape from uh, from Galicia originally, but you'll also find it in, uh, as I said, in Castilla Leon. Um, and it's it, texture-wise, it's quite similar to Albarino in that it kind of coats the mouth and this sort of um, waxy um, ripeness, right richness to it, right richness to it that you get. Um, but also, um, it, it kind of lingers longer in the mouth, and you get this sort of um, kind of soft lemon verbena character to the grapes um, to the wines and it's it's really interesting and it's it's a really good if someone wants if you're drinking a lot of reaspicious this is a nice sort of segue uh, which which won't uh, which will, will kind of fit right it right in with the thing and it's so Monterey is basically at one end of Galicia at the Portugal side of sorry at the Spanish side of Galicia if you know what I mean where Galicia is that bit sticking out over Portugal well if you go to the corner where Portugal and Spain meet and Galicia meet that sort of that sort of three corner is where Monterey is. It's, it's right on the uh, on the Spanish end. Um, and so we're then going to go right along the River Minho, which is the river that divides between um, between Portugal and uh, Galicia and to the end and to the to the um, to Rias Baixa. So, yeah, really interesting. And then they, these these wines work really well with um, sort of spicy food with like, say, things like Thai green curry and so on, but also just with, with seafood and with um, and also things like pork and stuff like that. They can cook with all of those kind of things. Um, so, I mean, among the dishes we're having is, is a press um, uh, uh, belly of pork, which actually should work really, really well with it. Um, and I think, you know, they can, we, we, we fuss a lot about matching specific things with specific wines, like, oh no, it's fish, we must have white wine. Well, no, not if you want to. You know, if you want to have a Beaujolais with a bit of chill on it, with a fish, like, that's not going to work as well with maybe a, a light, you know, very simply cooked uh, filter sole or place or something, but it will work really well with say tuna or any kind of oily fish or salmon or any, any dish like that. And, and, you know, if you want to drink, you know, Domaine de la Romani Conti Latache with your uh, fish pie, then do it. I mean, you know, there's no one telling you not to. So we're looking forward to having you in West Limerick tomorrow night. You're going to be in the mustard seeds. Then on Thursday, you are going to be at Platform 21 and the barn at Limerick Greenway Hub. And then you're going on to Dingle to Solace. Now, I know a number of those events are, if they're not already sold out, there are only one or two places left. And the campaign is all part of foodwinesfromspain.com if people want to find out more about those details. But you're a huge advocate for Spanish wine, Leslie, and you do feel that we should be giving it giving it more of a chance and maybe trying a few more out there. Yeah, and I mean, it, it doesn't even need that much help for me. I mean, already Spain outsells France and Italy and all the other European countries. It's only beaten by uh, Chile, as far as I know, in terms of the figures. Um, we are drinking a lot more Spanish wine, and there's a very good reason for it. Um, it tastes good, and it is inexpensive. I mean, Spain has some of the cheapest 
juice available, if you take a generic word for, for, for wines. If you want to buy wines from anywhere in the world, um, Spain and Chile are probably the two best value places to go. Um, and Spain's a little more interesting because Chile just tends to go with the same old varietals. Um, but from Spain, as I said, you've got this huge variety because if you move all over Spain, there's um, 100 different little Appalachians and the wines will taste different from all of them. Um, and look, who doesn't like to think of sunny Spain and, you know, and tapas and, you know, um, and even simple things like an omelette. How good is an omelette with a glass of red wine, as Elizabeth David wrote all those years ago? Um, but make it a Spanish omelette, you know. Uh, don't, put some chorizo on the side, even if you want. It's not strictly traditional, but, you know, Spain is just really good value. Um, and it is, it is, if you know nothing about wine, don't risk the wines from most other regions, to be honest, because you need to know a little bit of knowledge. You can just risk buying anything you want from Spain, even in the likes of uh, the, the, the German discount supermarkets, I would, I would argue. Um, it's just going to be much more reliable. And uh, hopefully you, you'll see this with some of the wines that I'm tasting. And, uh, and if you can't make it along, just go to your local off-license or your local supermarket and have a, have a look at the Spanish wines. Fantastic. Leslie, thanks so much. Looking forward to seeing you tomorrow. So safe travels to West Limerick. Thanks a lot, Sharon. Looking forward to seeing you then. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. to the best possible taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break, wine expert Leslie Williams, who writes for The Examiner, gave us some insights into Spanish food and wine week. Visit foodswinesfromspain.com for details of all the events. And apologies if I have misled anybody with the dates. I don't know what's going on with me this week with dates, but it's tomorrow, Wednesday, the 6th of October, that Leslie's at the Mustard Seed and on Thursday then he is in Platform 22 in Barna. Now, I linked in with our final guest last week. Judy Ratliff is the head chocolatier at Jude's Chocolates in Ballydehob in West Cork. So be prepared for the onset of a serious chocolate craving after you hear about her handcrafted award-winning chocolates. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Judy, great to talk to you today and I can think of nobody better to talk to than somebody that makes chocolates for a living. So tell us, what's the name of your business? Uh, it's Jude's Chocolates and the reason I actually went with it because my name is actually Judy but my granddad called me Jude. Oh. So, But uh, it's my way to kind of remember him. A lovely way to remember your grandfather, yeah, absolutely. And that does not sound like an Irish accent so you better tell us where you're from originally. Uh, we call it a Heinz 57 because my father's American, my mother's Irish. He was in the Air Force, so we traveled a lot. But I feel more Irish than American. I've been here for over 30 years. And there definitely is a bit of an Irish twang there. Well, if you live in West Cork, you can't help but avoid it. <laughs> so you're based in Ballydehob, and that's where you make your chocolates. It is. I'm very fortunate to be able to work from home, um, which I think during COVID was a very good thing. I wasn't hit as hard as a lot of my fellow traders. Um, I mean, I, I don't have the same overheads as a lot of people, but it still hurts when you can't sell for me. And tell me how it all began and how you got involved in making chocolate. Um, I actually started because I wanted the dark chocolate I couldn't find in the shops. But the irony of it is, I've made so much chocolate now that I don't eat it anymore. I come from a long family of diabetics, so I was looking for a dark chocolate that would suit my sweet tooth. But I, like I said, I rapidly evolved out of what I've made for myself. But it was nice that friends and family said, this is good, try and sell it, see how it goes. And I have to say, Skibbereen Farmer's Market was the best thing I could ever do. There definitely are a lot of businesses out there that were born out of the producers' need to create something that they wanted to have themselves. So when you started to make the chocolate originally for yourself, did you plan to make it into a business or did that kind of evolve over time? It, it evolved because my mother was involved with a craft shop in Skibbereen and they said, try selling it, you have space on the shelf, it's, you know, won't cost you anything. And it, it took off from there. But like, like I said, the, the, I, what I like about the farmer's market, a lot of people praise and think they're great. I like the fact that you can get feedback and nobody cares about the packaging. They're interested in the story and why you start and whether it's good or not. Um, 
I think I've often said it, I think they're a great starting ground. Definitely the ideal place to go to get research, to do research, to get feedback. And obviously that was all very positive because it is a full-time business for you now. It is, it is. Because like, think about a, a, any kind of market, you get feedback from customers and you rapidly discover what works and what doesn't. And your, your sales figures tells you what's the most popular, which I don't think a supermarket can do for you. And what is the most popular product that you do? Salted caramel. Dark chocolate or milk chocolate? Are all the products dark chocolate? All except one. I do one white uh, raspberry, which is not as popular, oddly enough. A lot of people come for the dark chocolate because I think there is a lot of people are moving towards a trend for healthier food and quality food. And it's a good Belgian chocolate that I use. So it's good. I don't do milk chocolate. I don't have enough time in the day to do another range. And is milk chocolate more labour intensive to do? Um, it's not so much as more labour intensive, but if you do one, say if you do the salted caramel and dark and then you turn around and do it in a milk chocolate, for me that's a two hour, two and a half hour process. So I couldn't cover the time. I do think that there is this perception with dark chocolate that it is the healthier chocolate to have and you maybe don't need to eat as much of it to feel satisfied, to get that craving satisfied. It is, but the number of people that have told me that they don't eat dark chocolate, but I don't think they've been exposed to good dark chocolate. And uh, I have customers I've known that have hidden their chocolate from family and friends. I think if we go back in time, certainly when I was growing up, the Bourneville chocolate was the only dark chocolate that you really came across. And it could be a bit of a migraine inducer if you if you ate too much of it. Well, I always found it was better for baking than anything else, and I couldn't eat it. It was too too bitter for me. No, good dark chocolate is nice. And I'm sure you've seen that consumers' tastes have changed over the, the years because you know, as you're, you're talking about that particular brand of dark chocolate being bitter, our palates have evolved and they have improved definitely whenever it comes to chocolate. It is. Um, I, I have to laugh. I have one customer who's from Switzerland and she sends my chocolates to Switzerland, which I find very funny, which is considered the home of chocolate. So why do you think that is? What sets your chocolate, your products apart from the ones that are made in Switzerland? Um, well, for me, I think it's because I try not to dilute the taste of the chocolate with artificial flavors like for instance the raspberry bark now it would literally be chocolate and phrased red raspberries and nothing else and there's quite a lot of the raspberries so it's quite it's kind of like sharp and sweet all at the same time i very much believe in not using artificial flavors because i think like a lot of people who've had my orange chocolates they think there should be an orange essence in it and there's not there's orange juice cooked down that's the kind of stuff I do. Tell me about bark because that's quite a, a new concept for some people whenever it comes to buying chocolate. They think it's going to be chocolate bark, uh, tree bark, but it's, it's just very thin strips of chocolate. Um, I actually make it on a table and it's five foot long and two foot wide. So you literally have that much chocolate laid out on the table in a very thin layer. Um, no, in some places they call it shards, which just sounds like glass to me. But um, no, it's it's. I think I'm different because I actually put a pattern on the bark as well, so it's almost like artwork, edible art. But the caramel's more popular, I'm afraid. So you make caramels, you make bark and filled chocolates, and they're made with ruby chocolate. Just explain to me what ruby chocolate is. Uh, ruby chocolate is a fourth chocolate. It's uh, pink, and it actually has a slightly fruity flavor to it. Um, it's made by Calibut, which is a Belgian company. And I think they're the only ones doing it because they probably have the rights to it. But um, it's, some people think it's white chocolate colored pink, but it's not. It's actually a fourth chocolate. It's very new to the market. Uh, it's quite fun to work with, but it's like working with white chocolate. It's very labor intensive. And if you don't get it right, you get a big ball of goo in your bowl. So that's definitely something that sets you apart from other chocolatiers out there in Ireland. Um, I would think so. I mean, it's it's still 
you'll see it turning up actually it's becoming a bit more commercial but at the moment it's not as widely known because whenever everybody looks at the box and they see the ruby on it they don't know what they're getting so you have to explain it to them but it's um i think what's nice is also i put candied um lemon zest in it which is gives it a bit of bite it's a bit like having a cocktail and a chocolate wow sounds lovely and i would imagine at this time of year with and we have to say the christmas word unfortunately isn't that long away you must be busy getting ready for the the festive season i am because uh, last year i thankfully my local local supermarket uh fields uh supervillian skibbereen they put my chocolates in their hampers which saved my bacon business-wise um because i said in my email to you uh easter hit me very badly I was expected to do double my sales, and but nobody was buying. It was just at the beginning of the pandemic, and nobody wanted to buy anything. Like so many food and drink producers, there you turn to neighbour food to to use it as an outlet to sell your products. I did because um, I could have gone back to the markets earlier than I did, but my mother has um, autoimmune problems, so until I was vaccinated, I didn't feel comfortable being out at the markets and selling. So neighbor food was a, a good outlet. It gave my customers another way to get my chocolates, which meant actually I got more exposure than I normally do, which was quite quite nice. Like I'm in I think six of the neighbor foods locally. I actually the guy that started I think is a very it's a good idea because it means for a lot of people that they can buy all the stuff in one place. I'm sure you've experienced Yeah, absolutely. It's a fantastic outlet for food and drink producers and for people who are passionate about food and, and where they get it from and it's always great to have you know different ranges and new and different products there and yours your product sounds absolutely fantastic a lovely treat to Wait. to enjoy every week whenever you started out you started at your kitchen table but because you got busier you had to you had to move out of it into a bigger place I did. The irony is it's actually probably smaller than space, but it's dedicated. I mean, when I work in the kitchen table, you have to clear everything away. And Whereas at least if you're in a space that's all yours, you can leave the equipment where it needs to be. And But actually, I'm getting new equipment very soon, which means they can upscale, which I'm very pleased about. It's meant to arrive any time. No word of when, unfortunately. Um, um, and does that mean that you'll be able to maybe increase the product range and maybe do some one-off different flavours at, at certain times of the year? Yeah, because at the moment I literally hand temper everything. So I can only do two and a half kilos at a push at a time, which is slows things down, but the machine means I can do 15 kilos at a time. I'm very much looking to that. And of course, we, we couldn't talk to you without highlighting that one of your chocolates was in the finals of the Blossnerin Awards this year. I am very excited about that because I think it's it's recognition of the hard work you put into doing something and it gives great pride in what you do. You work away on it, especially in a case like mine where I'm literally working on my own and you, I think you can lose the forest for the trees sometimes because you don't. You don't talk to anybody outside your work day and you don't know how good your work is until someone can come along and say, yes, you are doing the right thing. I think that's a very good feeling to have. Absolutely. Well, listen, congratulations on making it to the finals of the 2021 Blossom Aaron Irish Food Awards this year. If people want to get their mouths on your chocolates, let's say, where is the best place for them to go to get details of your different stockists? Um, at the moment, I do actually have a website, which is judechocolates.com. Also, um, they can contact me personally, but it's also available in the local supermarket here, but mainly the email or my website. Fantastic. Judy, so nice to meet you on Zoom today. Thanks a million for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you very much. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Judy Ratliff from Judd's Chocolates who had a product in this year's Blossnair and Irish Food Awards and to find out how Judy got on visit irishfoodawards.com where all the details of this year's winners can be found and that's all we have time for tonight thanks for listening and to my guests Linda McGibbon, Leslie Williams and Judy Ratliff until next week bon appétit <laughs> 
Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!